welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe, safe and, sound. and sound. Today, everyone, we're going to be continuing our little run of authorial-based interviews. Though, rather than talking about a book that covers as wide and an all-encompassing topic that we covered last week, a.k.a. our chat with Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett on her book, A Woman's History of the Beatles, we are instead going to discuss a book that not only just talks about the music, but it's not even as broad as, say, a single period in history, an album, or a recording session. No, today I have the pleasure to bring to your attention a book that literally hones in on a single Beatles song. Though, it is one hell of a song in its defence, being that it is Hey Jude. That book is called Take a Sad Song, and I'm going to be shortly speaking with its author, James Campion, At the top end of the show, let me just say that if you're a Beatles fan looking for something new, a straight-up die-hard Hey Jude fan, or someone who is just interested in the mechanics of why songs work with us as humans, then I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's incredibly detailed, definitely researched, and yet still is a fun, reasonably, reasonably breezy affair that tells you everything and more that you would ever want to know about one of the greatest most well-known songs of all time. It was an absolute pleasure having James on the show. We had a great chat. He was the best kind of guest in that, you know, he was more than capable at going on for an incredibly lengthy amount of time at the drop of a hat, you know, with the least amount of provocation possible. He was so incredibly knowledgeable about the material and was able to talk about specific parts of the book that I brought up with him. And he was even partial to a classic Paul and I think digression or two. What's even better, and you're going to hear this in the episode, is that he said that this was his favourite podcast interview he's done in the promotion for his book. And folks, I certainly believe him. It's clear that the man has taste and I'm not going to take that away from him. Of course, we will get to said interview shortly. But first, we must settle the matter of the housekeeping. So, starting off, what do we have in terms of news for today? Well, we have a little bit, actually. The Get Back DVD is back on, folks. Yes, we are back on track. We are getting back with Peter Jackson's Disney Plus's The Beatles' Get Back, the docu-series. After, you know, six months of waiting for this to come out and numerous delays and twos and fros, and is it going to come out? When's it going to come out? Why is it not coming out? It's finally coming out. It's going to be released on June 22nd, and unfortunately, it looks to be rather similar to the initial previews. You know, the DVD packaging is still the same. It's just three discs, with each disc being a different third of the documentary, like a different episode. Not particularly sure why I thought you could fit it all on one Blu-ray, or even a DVD at least. And it has no special features, no bonus features, no extra footage that Peter Jackson lobbied for, that all of us wanted. This is definitely still Disney's consolation prize for the people who didn't download their streaming service 
I'm pretty much only going to be buying it as a piece of posterity for my Beetle collection and for the show, in case I need to talk about it with anyone. I'm not particularly looking forward to this release. You know, I, I, I have Disney+, Plus. I have no reason to watch this, except in terms of a, a physical format. Yeah, a bit disappointing, really, but hey, for those of you out there who did not want to give the mouse monthly money and want to just watch Peter Jackson's Disney Plus's The Beatles Get Back in your own time, then hey, you will be able to do so on June 22nd, 2022. Now, moving on, Paul has actually been listed as the UK's richest musician by the Sunday Times Rich List here in the UK. That's a newspaper publication. And it lists his fortune at £865 million, up £45 million from last year, probably due to things like the Got Back Tour, the Get Back movie, the Let It Be release, the book. All of that stuff has netted him another 45 mil. I know some people are going to use this to fuel the fires of the expensive ticket fracas that's going on at the moment. But hey, I'm just glad that not only is my favourite artist also the richest guy in the UK, but also just the greatest songwriter of all time is the richest musician here in the UK. You know, there, there seems to be a nice cosmic balance there, and I couldn't pick a nicer guy than Paul to have such inorbitant wealth. But hey, Paul, you know, if you're okay with going down to 864 million and dropping a, a quick mill to your favourite Paul McCartney podcaster, then hey, I certainly wouldn't protest such a move. And finally, a previously unseen photograph of Paul McCartney on the uh, Sefton Park Boating Lake has been released to mark the 150th anniversary of the park's opening. Sefton Park, of course, is in Liverpool, and Paul did a quick tweet to mark the occasion. Happy birthday, Sefton Park. I often used to go there with various mates like John, George, and other friends from school. We always had a great time rowing on the lake, even though we sometimes couldn't hear the man calling us in when our time was up. Yeah, I think we can all safely assume that that's probably a bunch of young teenagers ignoring the man telling them that their time was up. But hey, and the photo itself is cool. It's a nice shot of someone on the other seat of the rowing boat taking a picture of Paul whilst he's rowing. Great nostalgic stuff. You know, it definitely feels like it would be the cover of an album, that kind of thing. But yep, that is the news, folks. Let me know your thoughts on the Get Back DVD. And you can do so by dropping in an email to the show. Contact us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always love reading out all and any correspondence I get here at the show. Got nothing this week. But hey, if you've got your McCartney story, let me know. If you've been on the Got Back tour, let me know. If there's any trivia or factoid you want to throw my way, I'd love to hear it. Or, you know, maybe you just want to say hi slash graciously correct me on any errors I may have made in the show. <laughs> For day-to-day contact, follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod. For bonus Paul or nothing written content, check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for all the socials. Of course, on YouTube, that is the only place where you can find new episodes of Macca in Your Attic, our side series, where we go through Paul McCartney memorabilia collections. No new episode for that this week. Uh, I am looking for suggestions. I'm looking at getting Tony, the other host from the Untitled Beatles podcast on, as well as some of the Blotto Beatles guys as well. But if you have a great collection or know someone who does, whether they're in the media or not, Hit me up, I'd love to hear the suggestions. 
Now, if you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to this show on. Yes, folks, it helps out the show greatly to get any and all interaction, even if you leave us a bad review. Yes, I even want your bad reviews, folks. So whether it's leaving us a tick or a thumbs up or a like or some stars or maybe even a nice comment, I would appreciate the engagement there. Thank you very much. And finally, folks, if you'd like to help out the show directly, if you'd like to help keep the lights running here at Paul or Nothing, you know, help you keep in enough funds to get brand new content when that comes out, new releases, that kind of thing. Maybe you can get new equipment for the show. Or, you know, maybe you just really appreciate the work that I do here at Paul or Nothing, you know, whilst working a full-time job. And you want to express such quote-unquote gratitude, pun intended, by chucking a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month, then please do not hesitate in joining our Patreon family. Patreon is, of course, the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. And it is not just a gimme. You do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all completed episodes of Paul or Nothing. Then you get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. So anything I record with someone over Zoom, instantly goes on the Patreon weeks, sometimes months in advance of the episode. That includes episodes of Mac It In Your Attic and Paul or Nothing. Then finished episodes of Mac It In Your Attic are also released a week early on there as well. You get access to lost and bonus and unreleased episodes of Mac It In Your Attic. You get all the scripts and screenplays that I use for the show. Screenplays? Scripts I use for the show. And of course, you get the exclusive Patreon vlog. This week, uh, the 10th one I've done now, I go through all of the songs that Paul has played live from the Beatles catalogue. So, you know, in conjunction with the Got Back Tour and all of the discussion of Paul's set list, I'm going to be going through every Beatles song where Paul has a lead and or shared vocal and talking about how many times he has or has not played it, concluding with which songs I'd like to see be brought back into the set list. That was really fun to do. I hope you all enjoy it. And... Before we move on, I must give a huge shout out to our new patron, our latest patron, Annie McNeil. Annie, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? I hope you are enjoying the Paul or Nothing Patreon. You joined at a very good time when I was uploading quite a lot of content because there's a big three part of that I'm working on that all three parts have recently just gone up. So please enjoy all of that. I'm really enjoying doing all of the bonus stuff for the Patreon family. I really appreciate everyone who gives in to the show. You're all the kindest people on the planet. I cannot truly express how grateful I am that anyone out there would give money to this show, but it truly is an inspiration and it gets me out of bed every day in the best possible way. So, yep, thank you, Annie McNeil, for joining the Patreon family, a family of people who include Boz76, Jeff H., David Staberski, Mitzi Carter, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoe, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, Matt Phillips, and of course, Percy Thrillington himself. Anyway, folks, now that all of the housekeeping is out of the way, we are now going to cut to the live feed for my interview with Mr. James Campion about his book, Take a Sad Song. Hit it. One, two, three. Go me. 
Okay, everyone, we are now here during the live portion of the show, and once again, we're going to be discussing another recent Beatle book, you know, despite the fact that we are not the Beatle Books podcast. Uh, this time, we are going to discuss a new type of Beatles text, or at least new for me, that I've never seen, and frankly, I want to see much more of it, which is a far more granular and ultra-hyper-specific look at a particular aspect of the Beatles story. Here today, today here, we're going to be taking a look at Take a Sad Song, a new book that is an exuberant deep dive into one of the greatest songs, uh, not just of the Beatles, but of all time, which is Hey Jude, a whole book about Hey Jude. What an interesting prospect. Uh, this book is really cool. I had a toppermost time reading it, and today I'm here with its author, James Campion. James, how's it going, dude? What's going Sam, on? Sam, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to chat about the book and all things Paul with you, and all things Beatles, of course. Awesome. Awesome. The pleasure is all mine. I'm always keen to have authors on so that I may glean from them the confidence to write a book of my own one day. But, uh, you know, specifically something that I was quite excited to find out. Uh, I only found out very recently, like within the last couple of days, far long after we uh, arranged to have a chat. Uh, you're, you're a podcaster yourself. Uh, what is your show? What is it about? Yes. I, well, we stopped when the pandemic hit in uh March of 2020, and we really couldn't get back to it, but it's called Underwater Sunshine. I co-host it with uh, Adam Duritz from Counting Crows, mm. lead singer and main songwriter. And uh, we were working on a book together for about a year at the time. We're still working on it. Uh, rock stars are not writers, so they don't have that, that same kind of deadline mentality. He does with his own songs, <laughs> though, I must admit, or getting to the show on time, as they say. So uh, Adam and I decided after those long talks, we would veer into things that had nothing to do with his life or counting crows or what I was writing about. So, uh, and it would be anything, film, music. So we decided to name it after one of the counting crows records called underwater sunshine in which they covered a lot of, uh, you know, sort of underground music. Mm -hmm. And we did play a lot of new music that nobody, uh, you know, had heard we thought or hadn't heard enough of. And, mm -hmm. but we did deep dives into uh, Woodstock. We did a series mm -hmm. on early Prince music. We did a, a whole series on, um, on punk music and chamber music. So uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, uh, but we felt that the best way to do that podcast was to be in the same room. So when the, right. you know, when it, this kind of thing that you and I are doing right now, of course, uh, across the pond, as they say, um, it, it, we thought, well, we could still get together. So we should. So we're thinking about getting back to it um, coming this summer. We also co-host a, uh, a music uh, festival of the same name uh, that usually mm. happens every fall. Last two years, of course, we couldn't do it but we're hoping to get it this year on the 18th and 19th of November. So uh, hopefully we'll be podcasting again by then, but thank you for asking. I appreciate that. Oh, no, it's, it's really cool. I feel like you're the only podcast that did less work during the pandemic. That's really funny. Uh, <laughs> I did. I wrote this book instead. Yeah. Like so many people either started podcasts or focused on their podcast during those wonderful paid months off. It was a very interesting time. Yes, and I enjoyed and I enjoyed listening to Beatles related podcasts while I was working on the book, not the least of which this one and many others, uh, you know, to kind of get everybody's perspective, see where it was at. It was kind of fun to be connected that way to the outside world when you're, mm. you know, uh, I, I was I was glad. That's the wrong word to use maybe during a quarantine and pandemic. But I was I was glad for the time to be able to do the research, do the interviews. Of course, everybody was home, so people were free to, to answer their phone and do hour-plus interviews with me, if not more. And um, but, but I did miss uh, you know, doing the podcast, covering music, going down to the city to see mm -hmm. bands play. But, but that, was the, that was the plus of it. I had the time to work on the book and, I, and to enjoy other people's 
perspectives on the Beatles. It really helped me stay focused. I'm definitely going to come back to that shortly. But you know what? Let's just start off with the basics. When did you first hear the song Hey Jude? And how would you describe your relationship with this song? So I'm 59 now. I would have been five. He doesn't look it, folks. He he doesn't Thank look you. it. Just just <laughs> just so you know. Thank you very much. Um, 59 now. So I was 50. I was I was five years old in in, in August of 68. I would have been six. The one thing I remember about Hey Jude is just the na 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 na, which I talk about in the introduction to my book about how when I used to have these nightmares, we all do as kids, mm-hmm. you know, the monster under the bed. And after a while, your parents get tired of coming in the room. Would you please go to bed? And I would sing that, never knowing where I heard it. Nothing. I knew nothing about anything called the Beatles. I didn't know anything about Paul McCartney. Maybe it was on a kid's show. Maybe Mm -hmm. I heard it on my parents' radio, getting driven to school or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would sing that. Stuck into my head. So when I heard the song, I wish I could remember. I've I've told the story a hundred times. And I put it in the book. But I wish I could remember, Sam, when I heard the song, in and of itself from the beginning to end. I I can't recall because I I know I had the blue album as many of us 70s kids did. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I I obviously had radio, listened to AM radio a lot in the early 70s. It must've popped up during that period. But really the the coda, the famous coda is the first time, that's the earliest memories I have of Hey Jude. And and they're very comforting, which was, you know, one of the uh, inspirations to go ahead and research this song. It was very mystical to me. Not to spoil the book at all, but that answer is not surprising at all, considering how much you write about the 999 segment in the book. That, that I mean, which, which is fair. I mean, as you rightly point out in the book, I never really thought about it in that sense, but it's longer than the actual uh, verse, chorus, verse section of the song itself, which is even crazier than the fact that it's seven minutes long. Yes, um, and you know what's totally nuts? There is no chorus. There's verse... Yeah. Bridge, verse, verse, bridge. Ver- There's like one of the verses are like in four or five times or some crazy. And then all of a sudden, after three and a half minutes of this beautifully structured melodic song, mm-hmm. you get four plus minutes of just the what they call the double plagal cadence, a three chord thang that they just sing these non-lyrical words over over with all the wonderful production by George Martin. It's it's like I said, that whole part. It's very, it's very mysterious and mystical to me. And obviously, very, it's a very strangely structured song. I argue, even though the Beatles did a lot of experimentation, especially during that period, I think it's the most, I think Rob Sheffield from Rolling Stone in my book calls it the most radical statement the Beatles made, especially mm-hmm. for an AM single hit, you know? It reminds me most, weirdly enough, of the music video version of Thriller, because the, the album version of Thriller is verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. But... In the video, it's all the verses in one, and then every run through of because this is thriller, thriller night, the chorus, all at all at the end. Because um, right. um, I, th- I think you, I think you say this directly in the book or this much, but like it, it is almost like an A and a B side together. I mean, both in length and in terms of offering two incredible uh, moments in musicality. I mean. In terms of yeah. like a physical product, Hey Jude Revolution, it has got to be one of the greatest values for money in the <laughs> entire Beatles catalogue, right? Right. Well, you know, Sergeant, you got you got your strawberry fields and your penny lane, but it's right up there, sure. Mm-hmm. And and the, to, to get back to your point about the the two part, I think it was the, the singer songwriter Eric Hutchinson, who's in the book, who told me, you know, you get two songs for one, and you also get two two sides of the Beatles in two sides. There, you get Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, John's sort of smarmy, tongue in cheek. Uh, 
answer to everything that was going on in 68. And I, I dedicated an entire chapter and it was a lot. And yes. of course, you know, Paul's seven minute plus thing. And, and, and the difference between Hey Jude, and that's a great point about Thriller. I wish I put it in the book now, Sam. Um, <laughs> is it's, it's a great, oh, I was always looking for little touchstones. You know, a lot of the professors I interviewed for the book, you know, were always gave me different ideas of where songs would go. Um, uh, Professor Frank Samarato from, uh, I believe, Indiana University wrote this paper called Expectancy and Infinity in, in Music. And I remember that tried, title, yeah. Yeah, and he tried, tried, tried to, to, to capture all the, the songs that Hey Jude Inspired, of course, the one that jumps out all the time is Layla, which has a completely mm-hmm. different coda, that piano part than the actual rocking part of the song. But just to your point about, about Thriller, the video extended version, a lot of those were in the 80s, those extended 12-inch mm-hmm. versions, we used to call them. Um, th- that is separate in and of itself, its own mix. I'm mean, here the Beatles are doing this in, the, in again, a radical way. This is an AM hit. Yes, a, a single, and I've often said the Beatles was just a, as as just a powerful a singles band as they were an mm-hmm. album band, which is a bold statement since they were so mm-hmm. powerful an album band. To, to to put that out as an A side is incredible. Even even something like Don McLean's, which I talk about in the book, yeah, American Pie, yeah. American Pie, which is longer, had to be split. When I was a kid, you bought the forty five and you had to part one and you flip it over and it goes to part. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So you know. It still has its its cachet, as they say. That's pretty crazy. Uh, you're right. Yeah. Uh, of course, Hey Jude itself has a pretty phenomenal music video in its own right. It doesn't have the same kind of cultural impact as the Thriller one, of course. You know, seeing Paul McCartney turn into a were cat probably would have been a pretty gnarly experience in, mm. in a in a in a six sixty eight. I mean, God knows what the ideas would have been because you know Michael Lindsay Hogg. Oh, let's get ten thousand Arabs with candles and whatever. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was a crazier idea. Apparently, somebody had come up with that, and the name is me i put it in the book it came up with a script that was something like you know 100 pages of that ends up with the beatles playing the nana part in front of some giant prison i have no idea what that is uh but i will i'll blow back a little bit on that one about thriller thriller did have a had had a there's no question about it the imprint of, of thriller changed music videos mm-hmm. storytelling and what pop music could do at the time but i i i'll say that the hey jude video and i i dedicate a chapter to that and Michael Lindsay Hogg gave me a lot of his time, is that, you know, it, it was so important for two reasons. The Beatles stopped playing live in 66. Yeah. So this is the first time, even though they're aping to it, they are singing it, and they were playing live in the studio to the backing track. Mm-hmm. So here are the, here's the audience for the Beatles who grew up with the Beatles and have missed the Beatles now through the whole Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's, Magical yeah. Mystery Tour, White Album, and here comes this song. And secondly, like I said earlier, you can't underestimate the Beatles' power during a time, especially for the boomer generation, what was going on in 1968 with all the riots and the assassinations and war and, and, and strife. It was very important that the Beatles went on TV and did something like that. that. That video, I think, is one of the seminal videos in the history of rock music. I've always loved how um, the Beatles have never drawn any attention to the fact that it's a very uh, multiracial, multicultural video as well, just in terms of the crowd that are there. There's never been documentaries where the Beatles have been bragging about that. They just did that naturally back in 68. It wasn't a big deal. It's very admirable. It's, it, is, it is really cool. Yes, um, it, 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 as they say, it ages well. And it, yeah. it was it was Michael Lindsay Hogg's idea because because he, he flat out told them and he told me what he told Paul. I can't film you singing na 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 for four and a half minutes. I love you. You're the Beatles, but that's crazy talk. 
So Paul's like, what are we going to do? And he goes, well, how, how, if we get, how about we get the world to sing it? And that's what they wanted. They wanted all different people of ages mm-hmm. and religions and color and all those things, which is very all-inclusive. And, and it's, extre- it's an extremely Beatle thing. One of the things that is not mentioned a lot, and um, a couple of Professor Shashko and Professor Craig Warner, both of them do a lot of black studies, black gospel studies. Mm-hmm. And they both told me, these professors, how important the Beatles were to not only connecting black music from America, uh, specifically like the, the rock and roll stuff, but also the, the, the girl groups and, mm-hmm. and uh, the soul stuff, the, the Sam Cooks, but also the fact that they would not play in the South, yes. the Jim Crow South, unless they lifted it. And they did it for the Beatles. If anything, the Beatles are like the reverse Jackie Robinson, you know, <laughs> in a sense where they broke, the, they broke a color barrier there. They broke yeah. a barrier that it took a little look. Clearly, I'm not saying the Beatles got rid of uh, racism in America in the 60s, but th- th- it's a very underreported, under-talked about concept of there. So I think, again, I try to make the argument in the book that Hey Jude is the culmination musically, philosophically, spiritually, and everything of what the Beatles were. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of those things. Yeah. Couldn't have put it better myself, even though I've never attempted to put it that way myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, let's just let's just go into the the nuts and bolts here, the bare bones. When did you decide you were going to write a book solely on the topic of Hey Jude? What inspired that? Well, what the, my very you know, I haven't talked about this on any podcast or interview I've done so far, so I'll share this with you and your 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 uh, listeners and viewers. Yes, because um, it just slipped my mind. You know, I just recently got the book. I actually have an actual copy of it. Just recently got Ooh. it it's out on June first. Uh, but um, the very first thing I was, I was on YouTube and my friend, Peter Blasovic, who's in the book, uh, he, he's a classical, uh, classically trained pianist and, and jazz pianist. And he played music and I've written about him and he, he's always my musical kind of mm. connection. And he sent me a, a link to uh, Paul was on this late, late show. Mm. Uh, and in which the, the host, um, drives around he does oh carpool karaoke yeah oh yes. yeah with james and Corden. oh my god Corden. yes and um I, Corden gets a lot of crap i think he's a very talented funny guy but i don't watch the show no i don't watch, <laughs> I don't watch the show but i did see this mm-hmm. and it, i don't know if you saw that segment it's it, it's you know Corden driving around with paul around liverpool stopping at his house it's really sweet and of course paul mm-hmm. is great and people are following he's waving to everybody it's classic paul but at the, at the end they play a set. They surprise everybody in this little Liverpool pub, which has like eight people in it. By the end, mm-hmm. there's like, you know, a hundred people in there and they end up with Hey Jude and everybody is singing and people are spilling beers and hugging. And they cut to this one woman looking up at the stage and she's crying like these tears. Yeah. Of joy. Yeah. And yeah. I looked over at my wife and she's getting teary and little tears coming down. And I'm like, isn't that kind of what I felt at five? This song that's what that per that woman, I'm guessing that woman is feeling exact. And when I saw Paul in 1989 and he sang, Hey, I saw the, mm-hmm. the, the flowers of the dirt tour in, mm-hmm. um, in Madison square garden. And that was the first right. time, as you know, that he was playing Beatles songs to that extent. Oof. So to be in the same room with this guy while he's playing this song, Hey Jude, and I've already told you about that kind of weird mystical connection I had that gave me chills, everybody. And I mean, everybody's singing this thing, mm-hmm. all of that stuff rushed back. And I thought, I got to get to the bottom of why songs do that to us on a, on a, on a subatomic level, on a conscious level. 
and how it continues to work for us and work for Paul and work for the Beatles over these many years. And I hope that my research in this book and, and, and discussing the concept of song with songwriters, Beatle biographers, authors, music journalists, musicologists, sociologists, psychologists, the, the list is long. Why do songs work? Why did it do it for us? And, you know, I've always been inspired by a lot of my heroes, Grail Marcus, who wrote, a song, who wrote an entire book about Like a Rolling Stone. Dave Marsh wrote a book about Louie Louie. So many books, not many, like eight or nine have been written about one song. So okay. I, I tried my hand at it, you know, but those are the, that, that really, that James Corden thing really struck me. And I sat around for a day or two and I thought, should I do this? And what really sealed the deal was the pandemic because I wanted to work. I needed to work. My, my publisher hadn't even bought the idea yet, but I wrote them and said, I'm, I'm going for this. And they said, okay, good luck. We'll get back to you. And luckily they did buy the book and now it's coming out. So that's nice. I guess that is the best way to describe the book, really. It's so much as it is about Hey Jude, obviously, if you were to do to explain what it's about, it is about why all songs work, but it's just done through the guise of this one particular song. And and it, it definitely does do that. Thank it, you. It, it definitely explores so many topics and so many different angles you, you can come out with the song. Um, when did you decide on the title, by the way, actually, just before we carry on? Uh, well, Take a Sad Song seemed obvious to me. Um, because when he sings the song, the highest note he hits early is that line. And one of the, the I think it was Howard Stone's, his uh, biographer, uh, one of his biographers, wrote Fab, which is a, is a wonderful book. We've had He's, him on this show. We've had him on this show. Oh, I love Howard. Uh, he's a good guy. And uh, he said to me, when Paul goes for the song metaphor, when the music metaphor, he's not messing around. That's serious business for Paul because that's what Paul's about. That's what music did for Paul when he was a kid and his mother passed, what it did for him to, in his connection with John and the belief that he had in the Beatles and this wonderful connection spiritually and subconsciously. He calls it magic all the time. I was amazed at how many interviews I, I heard and read with Paul or Bhagavad. He uses magic a lot. He believes in that magic of where he gets mm -hmm. these songs from. So when he sings, take a sad song and he goes there, it's so beautiful. It's the first time in the melody you're just drawn. And that was the title, the subtitle of the emotional currency of Hey Jude. It's just what I was saying to you before. There's an emotional currency to Hey Jude for me, James Campion. I think there's an emotional currency for that woman in that Liverpool pub and definitely emotional currency for Paul himself, who had to go through so many things in the 70s after the breakup of the Beatles, as you well know. He was blamed for it, you know. He was given more crap, I think, than any Beatle. Oh, yeah. And he, and he fought, you know, all the other Beatles seemed to pal around a little bit more, and, and Paul was kind of off on his island with, with Wings and, and with Linda. And I think the fact that Paul did not die of cancer at 58 like George or get assassinated at the age of 40 like John, has continued to build on that legacy. And he's now played, I, I put the number in here, I can't remember what it is, but he's played Hey Jude, you know, four or 500 times, whatever the hell it's been since 1989. And he continues to mesmerize us with his talent. He's doing it right now as you and I speak. So it's just, yeah, uh, the emotional currency is that. And also because every songwriter, and even some of the biographers told me, there's that payoff, right? We all mm -hmm. know subconsciously we're going to get to that part where we're all going to sing at the end, right? And there's that payoff. They kept using the word, there's a payoff. Paul even hints at it when he does that, na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, on, on the end of each bridge. So I, I don't know. That just popped into my head. I wrote it down on a pad, and I decided somewhere halfway through the project that that would be the title, so it stuck. 
No, um, just going back to when you quoted all of those, uh, the numbers of Thompson's played, um, I was really glad to see that you quoted the Paul McCartney project directly there. Uh, that's a website that I'm using for um, an episode I'm doing on all of the Beatles songs he has and hasn't played. So I'm, I'm using the exact same resource. I love it. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Uh, Nicholas Leroy is the guy's name. I've spoken to him before. We've had him on this show. In, an incredible chap who's just doing it all by himself. Although I found a spelling mistake on it today. I was like, I, I, I don't have the heart to tell him. I can't. That's <laughs> <laughs> all by himself. Well, listen, if you could, if you don't mind, uh, you know, uh, see if you can hook us up via email or something like that. I would love to, to let him know about the book. If he's, is he, is he located in America? Is he located he's over there? French. Oh, he's in France. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so hard that. for me to send books. I get orders from on my website. I offer free shipping in the United States, the continental United States. But I get I just got a couple of orders from the UK. It's $75 to mail a book, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I can't absorb that. And I wouldn't expect the, it, 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 you know, because the book is $27. It's over $100 to read a book. I said, you know, obviously you've got Amazon UK and, uh, you know, bookstores over there will carry it. We're, we, you know, to Roman and Littlefield, my publisher's international publisher. So you could get the book where you are. But uh, for me to sign it and send it over there, I couldn't believe 75 bucks. But I, I'd love for him to read it. I'd love to, to hear his thoughts on it. Of course. No, um, I had someone who listens to, to, uh, to this uh, show send me some clothes and some vinyl in a box. <laughs> and I had to pay about a hundred pounds, one hundred twenty-five dollars, to uh, get it all cleared. It was totally worth it in the end. Uh, ah, totally, yes. yeah, of course it is. If you're a collector, sure it is. Yes. Now, were you ever concerned that you were going to have enough material for a book like this, or did you know that there was always going to be plenty for you to cover the moment you started? Well, I was again. I was just going to get into how the song works, which is the last two chapters. How the song works and what I call comfort and unity, which is the oh no, cha- folks, chapter ten, how the song works. That's the one I re- I read it slightly out of order, but that's the one I went to straight away. I was like, okay, I want to know how Hey Jude works. It was a very good title for that chapter because I went so I went straight to it, and, it's, <laughs> and it is my it is the the one I had the most fun reading because it's it's the most technical, it's the most explanatory. It 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 does away with metaphor and simile. It's very clinical. That's what I liked about it. Thank you. Thank you. And that's what I, I tried to tell the whole story, get the whole undercurrent, sub subtext, sub, you know, stories of Paul, story of John's, the, the Beatles, 1968, the video. But I really, so when I first started out, that was, you know, answering your question. I wanted to just be like a glorified essay about how this particular song, as I said before, just fells me. It just kills me every time. God, it's so beautiful. So many different, I mean, I've had people tell me there's four or five melodies in here, four or five different uh, counter melodies in this thing that it uses, you know, forms of Bach and it uses forms of gospel. And it, it, like I said before, it harkens back to all the things that made the Beatles great. But no, I did not think I would have enough until I started to do a little research for fun. I went on the internet and I went through some of my old Beatle books and of course went to uh, Mr. McDonald's wonderful revolution in the head and a couple of other, you know, books. I respect Tim Riley, who I got to interview. He, he wrote the very first book, which I didn't know at the time when I bought it and read it in 1988, but you know, he, he wrote the very first, you know, deconstruction song by song of the Beatles. And so once I started to gather up information, I realized, and that's why I put it right off, off the bat in the very first chapter which I think I call factoids and such. Yes. So many different cool things about Hey Jude 
that's beyond our thoughts and our, 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 what we, you know, who's thinking these things, even Beatle maniacs might not even know these things. So I, that started to build on more of it. And then I want to get into this more a little later on. Cause I know this is a Paul McCartney, uh, you know, themed podcast and I don't know what questions you got coming, but I do want to talk a lot of what I learned about Paul McCartney, the man, the boy, mm-hmm. and his relationship to his mother, his relationship to John, to John's mother and his relationship to the structure of his songs and how he uses empathy and sympathy to understand the human plight. And I think that's very, very rare in mm. any songwriter. I think that's one thing that Paul possesses that a lot of songwriters don't. And so put all those things together and that's what, what started building this up into a full book for me. I must admit, I did have a certain cynicism going into the book. I, you know, I was wondering how much detail is there possible to go with this song? I've, I've read about this song a dozen times in a dozen books. And folks, I am pleased to report, I'm not just saying this because he's here. I, I could be that guy. But <laughs> it, 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 it was unfounded. There was so much like material here. I learned so much about this song. Maybe not in terms of specific facts and dates and stuff like that. Like It, it, it was like, oh, and... And by the way, whilst they were recording it, Bruce Lee was there. Like, you know, nothing too crazy. But in terms of theory and and how the song works and the mechanics and the themes and stuff like that, lots of arguments made, lots of eyes opened. It, you know, it, it is a very engaging work from start to finish. Uh, there is there, there is one chapter on a brief Beatles history. I think that's chapter four. Uh, that's probably the only stuff that you're really going to encounter that you've seen before, which I did enjoy. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Yeah. Really appreciate that. Yeah. And I, and I, I've often said this and I'll say it and you know, I, I, I tell a lot of the interviewers that I, I, I tend to start off my, my initial idea is to write for my wife and just assume that she doesn't know that she just doesn't, why would she know? She just doesn't get into the minutia of this stuff. So I, I, I'm going to assume that, that she doesn't know mm-hmm. that, I don't know, John met Paul at a, you know, a, a, a local fair or when they were teenagers, or that um, the Beatles played the command performance, or that they went to visit the Maharishi, or any of those things. So I thought that was important to get that. That's why I call it a very brief, because I don't want to be one of those people who's like, okay, there's a lot of stuff we already know in here, but I can't assume that, and, and it was Rob Sheffield and a lot of these, Devin McKinney, a lot of these Beatle writers who told me, there's a whole generation, Rob's Wonderful quote that I put in the book. The Beatles didn't happen. The Beatles happening. There was a resurgence in the 1990s. And there's another one in the aughts. And then there's another one. You know, and, and now he's touring again. So there's a whole generation of Beatles fans that didn't grow up with a lot of the minutia that, that mm-hmm. say some of us said, you're much younger than me. And there are people older than me that, that, were, that remember the Beatles playing Ed Sullivan. Or remember the, you know, them, uh, you know, the video for Hey Jude on the Smothers Brothers show. I don't. But I'm that next generation, but there are many other generations. But thank you. I, I tried to make it more about the song again, but you can't escape the Beatles. They are inescapable in the story, certainly. I mean, the kind of original hook of the show, I mean, it's it's become less and less as I've gone on through his discography. But the original idea was I didn't know most of um, McCartney's solo albums, so I'm going into the majority of these relatively fresh. 
And that's how I went into that book. You know, I just I, I just tried to be as open as possible. And there was so much about that track that I didn't know. But you know, you're right. Not having all of the burdens of of the pastors allowed me to look at this music a lot more objectively. And I don't have to worry about what was popular or not. I just kind of feel what is good. But Hey Jude is one of those songs where it certainly lives up to the hype. Uh, it definitely fits under the category. It's popular because it's good. Um, yes. yes. I also, I also uh, want to talk about that chapter one, that first chapter, or the, the kind of the, the prologue part, because that that really hooked me in. Um, that part that comes in before the introduction, where you walk the reader through the song uh, with like, oh, yes. a single line that was kind of relevant to the to like the paragraph after it. That was really cool. How how far into the writing process did you come up with that little nugget? I'm always worried about doing that. Thank you so much, Sam, for saying that you enjoyed it because uh, I, and I've made, I, I always quote this. It's true. I think it was Elvis Costello that said that writing about music is like dancing to architecture. So um, <laughs> it's, it's hard to describe anything sounds certainly. Yeah. And, and as I, I'm going to use this word again, the mystical, magical, spiritual aspect of music for all of us, how it touches us, any kind of music. But to describe, I felt the need to describe the song first, because when I, I wrote the introduction and I start the introduction with na, 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 na. Yeah. And I wanted to explain that importance of it in my childhood and what it meant. And the fact that those, that, that little melody, those na's are, are so universal. They're just known. And, and uh, that's the draw for me. But I think it was, you know, my publisher who said, you should really move the song description first. Bring them in so when you get to the nana, because I, I don't describe every pass to the 19 nananas, I just describe, okay, here we go. And that's and then so the, the fact that nana starts the introduction, which tells the reader why I'm writing the damn book about one song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and so that was that was the at least the structural idea. But but the original idea, I wrote a book that came out, my very first book for Backbeat Books came out in 2015. It's called uh Shouted Out Loud. Um the story of Kiss's Destroyer, the band Kiss, and the making of an American icon. In that, I break down the entire album. There are nine songs. So breaking each cha- section, I describe the song. Mm-hmm. And some people loved it. Some people didn't. Some people got a kick out of it. They thought it was an interesting. But for me, it was the most fun because it was creative writing. I'm not saying I don't do creative writing in this, but I think you're right, Sam. The best reads in here are people's voices people breaking down giving me i'm 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 on the phone i'm on zoom i'm asking these people why why what's paul doing here why does this give me chills when he does that why would he go in this direction why did the beatles do this so i gave more voices so i'd say 60 70% of the book are the voices of all these people i interviewed and hung out with during that you know pandemic time mm-hmm. so the most creative part for me was to describe the song no you know stanza by stanza and try as best I can. And I was hoping that somebody like you would dig it and be like, okay, what the hell's this? And then, oh, I see that. Even if you don't follow along, I think it gets you into the mood because it is a book about the song. That's important. Yeah, if you don't have us by that by that first page, even you know, there's there's doubt casting. It does immediately draw you in. Um, I'm I'm kind of reminded by 
weirdly I'm reminded by Hamlet in the sense that you come in kind of halfway through a conversation almost because you haven't gone through the entire previous last bit of the song. It gives it a sense of urgency. Uh, I'm really I'm really showing off my old classes of English literature. Uh, yeah, yeah, but well, I'm taking um, that compliment yeah. to heart then. I'm yeah. taking it right to it's heart. It's as Thank good you. as Shakespeare, folks. <laughs> That's, uh, that is the can I use that as a blurb? Yes, you can, no, no, you could definitely put that on the book. I'll gladly have have that <laughs> as as outrageous as it is. I love it. Um, Thank now, you. Now, uh, you have a wide variety of sources, both written and uh, in terms of like uh, quotes from Beatles scholars and people you've interviewed. Um, so these were all done over Zoom. I mean, how many books? Yeah. Yes, how many books did, did you have to read? How many interviews did you have to conduct to put the book together? I think there's something like 25 or 30 interviews in the book. Uh, I read. Now I had gone back. I had read probably about 20 or 25 Beatle books over my lifetime. Uh, so I reread almost all of them from around the Cavern period through to '68. So I didn't read it all the way through the breakup and all that other stuff. Same with the Paul stuff, although I did read Paul's biographies from the beginning, but I stopped in 68, um, I, you know, only because I, I had to get to the next one. I'm, I'm researching and I, I would mm-hmm. love I, I, some of the books I ended up finishing later on, but that's what I did. So I probably read, you know, somewhere between 15 and 25 Beatle books, parts of which some of them were introduced to me. Tim Riley told me about Magic Circles, which is Devin McKinney's brilliant book, which I think is the second best well, my favorite Beatle books is Mark Lewison's studio, which is it's the king mm-hmm. of all king books. And Mark was very good about answering my annoying email. So my tip of a hat to to Mark. Um, and uh, I have to get a hold of him because I want to send him a copy. And um, But Tim told me to read Magic Circles, and he told me to read Rob Sheffield's Dreaming the Beatles, which is now my favorite Beatles book, a book about the Beatles. And so both those guys gave me a ton of time after I read their book. So it was a lot of research. But to tell you the truth, that is where my belly is itched. I love doing research. I love it. Mm -hmm. And I love picking out things that are threads. And that's where this book revealed itself to me. I've said this many times, and I know it sounds like, you know, granola, hoity-toity stuff, but it's very true. A book eventually reveals itself to you. It will, you start off with an idea and a thesis, that's all well and good, you know, best laid plans and all that. But eventually the book and the, and the experts will shift your theories. And one of the, uh, the, the professors wrote me today because I was telling everybody that the book's out and I want to send them a copy. And he said, did you, let me ask you something. He said, did you f- think about Hey Jude differently when it was over? And I got to tell you, Sam, I thought about every Beatles song differently now, mm-hmm. totally differently. Now that I know because of all these threads, because of the speaking to all these Beatles scholars and all these Beatles authors, and because I seeped myself so deeply for those six, eight, nine, ten 10 quarantine months into this thing, hardly ever coming up for air, that I found out things about Beatles songs I never knew. And now when I hear them, I hear them in a completely new way. So songs I've been listening to since I was a tween are now you know coming alive in a whole new dimension and listen that's the greatest forget it i hope everyone reads the book and enjoys it but that's the greatest gift for an author or a music geek like myself is to get something new out of something you've heard a million times especially an old fart like me i used to say it's so hard and they say this about music you 
only get your real musical taste from 18 to 25. Because after that, there's a lot of repetition in there. You're not seeing things for the first time. You have a basis and a foundation. You don't have those same friends that you're trading music with. But I found many times in my life, thank, thankfully, because I write about music for a living, that I can learn new things about songs like Hey Jude or bands like the Beatles that I never knew. Now, um, speak, you know, there's, there's a very universal element to the book, but there's also a lot of stuff that is almost for people in the know, I'd say, like um, chapters six through eight, we start getting a little more in depth in terms of the songwriting. You know, you, you, you go into detail on the importance of a certain chord that Paul uses, like does it go from F to F dominant seventh or to B flat major? And I wanted to know whether you were concerned or aware going in that some readers would not be able to keep up with such technical language or whether you just decided to write parts of the book specifically for that target audience who would get it, quote unquote, if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. I, I ran across this when I wrote the Kiss book because uh, if if your if your listeners or you don't know the great Bob Ezrin, whom I wanted to meet, which was part of the the motivation for me writing the book about Kiss's album, because he produced like those early Alice Cooper records. He went on to produce mm-hmm. The Wall by Pink Floyd, the first Peter Gabriel record. Mm-hmm. He's produced you know dozens of beautiful, and he's classically trained. And I thought it would be a great perk to write about a Kiss album and have somebody talk about you know. Uh, what he did with the the famous ballad Beth and how he used all these classical things and he brought in a Beethoven sonata. So for that, that gave me a little bit of foundation going into this. But I think what I wanted to do was I wanted to, I look at a book also as a stew. So Mm -hmm. if you're going to write a book about, hey, you do not want someone to go, hey, you shouldn't, how how could you, how did you miss this? Or that's got to be in there, which is, you know, a lot of people like, Paul wrote the song for Julian. We know the story a lot of people make fun of it i know the story drove out to comfort cynthia and julia when you know john met yoko i put that in there certainly because it's very important in the lineage and thread of how paul was as a as a person but i think musically even though paul is not classically trained like say bob is you know my friend peter he did things that evoked that so when a when a, a musicologist dr coke from uh, NC State University or Walter Everett, the great Walter Everett, who's written tons of stuff on the Beatles, starts to pick out to me, this is, this is the same kind of structure that Bach would use or Beethoven would use. And this is, this is what makes Paul almost in a Mozart sense, a king of melody. And so I thought it was very important. I didn't bog it down. I hope you didn't think so. Mm-hmm. Bog it down with too much musicology or that kind of stuff. But when a musicologist is sitting with you, uh, you know, on Zoom with a piano and he's like, listen to this. Listen to where this goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to follow it, and you got to, sh- and it's you have to be fair to your readers. They need to hear this. They need to read it. So, and maybe one day they could talk to somebody who's taking piano lessons, or maybe they're they're learning piano and say, "Hey, I just read this cool thing. Can you show me what Paul's doing here in this part in Hey Jude?" And I'm sure it'll bring the glimmer to the eye of someone who knows about music because they'll say, "Yeah, that is pretty cool." And it's cool how he combined this with this kind of style and it's all in the Hey Jude. And I thought it was important that the readers should know it. Yeah. Conversely, you, know, you mentioned magic already. You know, being a book of this nation, you, you have to go into, into an unprecedented level of detail with the song, which you do do in spades. And I did understand all of that technical stuff. Maybe, maybe not in a literal sense where I can repeat it, but I knew what you were explaining and the nuances of that. It wasn't that impenetrable at all. Um, 
Thank you. And I'm not a musicologist or even yeah, I, mean, yeah. I can I can fake my way through guitar and I play the drums a little bit. My brother's a drummer, but I I I I'm right. I'm trying to write for the layman. And so I even sent the, I sent all the commentary that was technical like that back to the professors. So I was able to write it up well. Mm-hmm. And and they all gave me the nod. So I know at least that's what they wanted to communicate to you. So you're getting it straight from the source. So I'm glad. I just want to say off the top, I am not a musician in that way. But it's important if you write about music that you at least tip your hat or give credence to the quality of music that is in Hey Jude. Mm-hmm. Was there any worry that you would be working against that ethos of immaterial magic that Paul discusses so regularly <sighs> when he's talking about his songs, you know? Sure, sure. Well, that's one of the things I say in there. I, you know, I say, you know, I spend eight chapters talking about how Paul is a manipulative, emotional songwriter. He goes for the gut. He, he uses, you know, whether it's for no one or Eleanor Rigby uh, or even something that's jaunty like Lady Madonna, he goes for the emotions there. Uh, you know, she's leaving home. Um, but he knows what he's doing. He's a craftsman. So he, he's not just floundering around, you know, like some, um, you know, fictional French poet getting, getting hit by lightning and coming up with great stanzas. This is a man who's a, who's, whose structure is, is sound, who has a history, a long history, even by 68. Think about it. It's got Paul had been writing songs since 14, and he spent those, those two years in Hamburg growing up fast, playing songs over and over again, and forcing himself to restring guitars because he's a lefty or learn to play piano on the fly. And he had his father, who was very musical, had his own band. He had a very musical family. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, no, I think that it's important that people know that Paul, and I think they do know that Paul's a great craftsman and songwriter, but there is a bit of, ooh, in Hey Jude. Wow, why, yeah. where, did that come, where did that just come from? That's cool. I guarantee you that Paul wowed himself when he came up with the second part of that. And, and I know every songwriter said it's, it's almost unthinkable. And even songwriters at the time, whether it be Brian Wilson, even Mick Jagger, when he first heard it, said it was like, this is what, did you just graft this on? And he goes, no, it, it's, tr-. And, and, and the musicologist and some of the songwriters said, you could see where Paul is going from the very first line. And even I point out in the, in the book, and you have to point it out, the brilliance of, hey, Jude, the name of the song, <laughs> the, the th- theme of it. The melody is right there. So when you ask somebody, how does Hey Jude go? Hey Jude, that's what they yeah. say. I mean, it's genius. And the Beatles did that a lot, whether it's she loves you, yeah, yeah, or help, I need somebody, or he's a real nowhere man. They they bring it into you. It's just, they're great craftsmen, but there is a lot of magic to it because they're a band. So when they record it, and I dedicate a chapter to that, that is crazy when you watch when you when you restructure how the Beatles went in the studio. It's almost it's really spiritual. It's almost hard to believe that those things happened. You know, mm-hmm. it's crazy. So there is still magic in it. No, uh, I, I remember reading that the the no 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 bit didn't take its full form to like take fifty or something like that. That's absolutely insane. Um, I was in the pretty- rehearsals, in the rehearsals, because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they only did four takes of it in Trident, and the first take is the one that you hear on the record. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I mean, but the rehearsals, yes, they did. You're right about that, because I went through all the different takes, and they started to, to expand on it more and more. But from what I understand, Paul drove out in late June, uh, right around his birthday, and 
to visit Cynthia and um, and Julian and came up with the melody, "Hey Jules," mm-hmm. which he would have done because driving out to to uh, where where um, where John lived uh, was where Paul had been writing songs. Mm-hmm. He would be prepared to talk to John, you know, about a song. They wrote dozens of songs out there, and it was about an hour drive. So Paul, of course, would start thinking of a song, and he was thinking of a song for Julian, but. He comes back from that trip, and within a day, maybe two, he has this structured song. Because we do know, and I put it in the book, he runs around and starts playing it for people. Mm-hmm. He's playing it in pubs. He's playing it for the for the guys in uh, Badfinger. He's playing it for the guys in the Duda Bonzo band. I mean, he's, he's basically going, hey, what do you think of this? So he has a fully structured song in like 48 hours. I mean, that's crazy. By the way, that but for those people listening, that was my brain exploding. Um, just going back to an, an earlier point, I was pretty fascinated by the, the idea that you brought up that, you know, the Beatles, particularly Paul, write songs that start off with the title phrase. Again, it enacts that same kind of urgency and energy. And I just went and looked through just the first three years of Paul's solo career. You've got the lovely Linda, that would be something. Every night, man, we was lonely. Maybe I'm amazed. Massive song. Oh, Woman, Oh, Why, the B-side to uh, Another Day. Too Many People, Ramon, Bit Bop, Dear Friend, Give Ireland Back to the Irish, Mary Had a Little Lamb, Single Pigeon, When the Night, I Lay Around, Jet and Mamunia. That's just from the first three years of his solo career. All of them brilliant songs in, in, in their own right, in, the, in, in their own way. But yeah, definitely a tricky picked up early on. And I thought, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on using that one. Yes. So, and it's very smart. It's very smart. And 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 listen, it's not the I mentioned some of the songs like Strangers in the Night, you know, or even Amazing Grace, uh, you know, who that opened the song with the title. But it's it's a great. It's a it is a great vehicle. And, and this reminds me too, Sam, I was inspired. One of the inspirations uh, for this book is I wrote a piece uh, for then the Dog Door Cultural, then now the Pittsburgher. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, about uh, "Over the Rainbow," which I believe is the greatest song ever written. Interesting. Uh, it's my, it's my, hard to argue against. Hard to argue it's, against. Yeah. It's a masterpiece, and and if you have a chance to find that piece online, uh, it's everywhere. Uh, and it was only a five thousand word piece, but in it, I started to realize how that song is structured. It's very weird too. Again, starts off with somewhere over the rainbow and it gets you right into the moment of what it's doing. Now, technically what those guys did is they wrote a beginning part. There is a beginning part to that song that, that Julie Gar- Judy Garland used to sing live, but it's not in the film and it wasn't in the 45 of it, or the, I guess at the time, the 78. So we all heard it by somewhere. And of course that's sure that how Paul would have heard it. Although, you know what I just found out? Watching Get Back, Paul McCartney had never seen The Wizard of Oz in 1968. I mean, how is yeah. that possible? Did you guys not see The Wizard of Oz ad nauseum like we did here in the States when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. No, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Christmas watch every year. It's, uh, it's absolutely insane. Yeah, you're right. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I don't know, what, but maybe they didn't do it in the 50s or the early 60s. But Paul apparently, because <laughs> someone had asked him and he's like, no, I've never seen The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I did not know that there was an earlier part to that song. That's absolutely mind-blowing. I'm going to have to go and check it out the moment this interview is over. Uh, oh, yeah. It's, yeah. But, da, 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 da. You know what? It's written in the sense of, and a couple of the musicologists talked about this in my book, about the way Broadway songs are written. Mm-hmm. Me, like that kind of ease us in. You're telling a story, which, of course, 
Over the Rainbow is doing. But I, I also argue that Hey Jude is doing it. Mm-hmm. It's telling the story of Paul. It's telling the story of Julian. It's telling the story of John. It's telling the story of Yoko. It's telling the story of Linda, I believe. And of the Beatles, of the Beatles fans of 1968. But you're telling a specific linear story with Over the Rainbow. And so there's a little intro part that she's, it's a beautiful melody. And it's very reminiscent to the bridge of that song, which is, um, it, it, it double times there. Um, anyway, I know this is not about <laughs> Over the Rainbow, but I do think, I've often said that Hey Jude is in my top five of greatest songs ever written. So I'm glad I was able to spend a year and, and get a book out on it because I wanted to tell everybody why I think it, it is. If you were making a series based on the Beatles and it was a musical, Hey Jude is definitely one of those songs that you would find very easy to write a plot to get to because it, 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 it's so in, ingrained in their story. It's it's not like a really bad revolving musical. It's like, okay, how do we go to Dr. Robert now? Okay, okay, cool. You know, <laughs> Uh, you know, you just, could do, you could do, what do they call those jukebox musicals now? You could do a jukebox mu- musical. I mean, they, I know they did the uh, Cirque du Soleil, and I know that the Hey Jude remix of that was pretty cool. I like that with that cool bass line they put in there, which now he does, his band does, puts that bass line in when they do the mm-hmm. breakdown of it. But um, yeah, I, I think you could do, you could do all those Beatles singles and do a walkthrough of the Beatles' career without getting into the deep woods with Dr. Robert or. Yeah, things like it, that. Run for your life, and you call it Beatles number one, and yeah. you get you get Andrew Lloyd Webber involved. It goes, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna rule Broadway for thirty years, definitely. Yeah, it would. Um, yeah, um, they did have Beatlemania when I was a kid. I never yeah. saw it, but they did have that. Yeah, yeah. I can't I can't imagine a world where Beatlemania would still be intact. It's definitely been just <laughs> my thing. Uh, everyone's like, oh, oh, do you like the Beatles? Do you? What's your favorite song? Please ask me that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's good. So um, in in chapter 10, you talk about um, uh, how the the song works. um, Every time you hear the song, you're you're waiting for that refrain. And because it never fails. Do you reckon that's the reason McCartney's refused to ever take the song out of his set lists since 1989? I, I mean, it's one of those songs that, just seems to work the moment it's played it it, it you like there's no there's no uh, copy of a, an evening where hey jude failed to get the crowd completely emotional and into gear i mean the, the the only negative clip of it that exists is linda's isolated vocal i guess from the uh, oh yeah it's 1993 terrible. tour it, yeah it, it's, it's it, it, i hate that it's mean-spirited it so, so is yeah and uh Tip of the hat to, to the late, great Linda McCartney, because who was a brilliant photographer and was not a singer or, you know, but Paul had to have her in the band, which was which was always which was always endearing to me that these two men again. And I and please read the book because I delve deeply into the psychological uh, mm-hmm. aspects of these two men who lost their mothers at a very young age and then found the two women that would complete them within months of each other and married these women within seven days of each other. And both of these women uh, were, were divorcees. Very yeah, yeah, divorcees. Yeah. They went to the same high school, weirdly enough, in, in Westchester, New York. They they hung around in the same areas of downtown New York City, uh, one trying to make it in photography in Linda, the other one trying to make it in performance art in Yoko. Um, and they they both had daughters from previous marriages. It's, it's really eerie and remarkable. But... Um, 
Yeah, I, I think that that the the connection that you find in in what Paul is doing on a personal level and a musical level is very prevalent in this song specifically. But I think it's also in and 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 that is his love for Linda because he had just fallen in love with her. And I will say also, you know, again, tip of the hat to Linda, she sings beautifully in Ram, which is the second greatest mm-hmm. solo album, uh, I believe Beatles solo album and his finest record. And she is just magnificent in that. And I know he tutored her and probably coached her, but she's singing those songs and they sound great and she's doing great. So I, yeah, I always thought that 93 thing was, was uh, me inspired, but you're right. Every time he plays it, I don't know how you could take it out of the set. It's, pr- it's I think one of the professors said it's almost as if, he, as if he wrote it to play live. It's just a shame mm-hmm. that they weren't touring them, but you could see in the, in, when they do the video clip, how much they adored it. And even Michael Lindsay Hogg who directed it was in the room with them said, I could tell right then that they missed people and getting a reaction from people and being in a room with fans and people clapping when they were done playing all those things you miss if you're not a live act. And it was the impetus for Get Back. They were going to do a big show. And it was the impetus to bring cameras in and, and film them. So uh, they were very jazzed by this. Uh, and they missed it. They absolutely missed it. So so for Paul to not play it now. And, of course, the one thing that keeps coming back, Sam, and that is a wonderful story that Paul tells that I put in the book that really, really gave me the chills. One of those things that popped out to me when I was writing the book, I had to put it in. It's not in any book. It was in a, a YouTube clip of an old show that Bob Costas, uh, that I loved. And I probably saw him, Paul say this back in 89, 90 when he was touring. And Costas asked him, does he ever think of the fans or the people out there you know, that, about his lyrics and what the songs mean? And he said, no, I'm just trying to get through the songs, interacting with the band. I'm trying to stay in the moment. He goes, but there is one time through the set when I sing that line, the movement you need is on your shoulder. And he because gets a bit choked up, yeah. Yeah, and because he said John would not let him take that out, and he always thinks of John. Of course, John adored Hey Jude up until the day he died, said it was Paul's greatest work, never ever said, like, I helped him with this lyric or I fixed that. Like, he did, you know, he said countless times about Eleanor Rigby, and he, he would never, I mean, he said that was Paul's thing, it was brilliant lyrically musically and for paul to think about john every time he plays i, I don't he would never not play it because john comes to him and and the, and the cover of the book which i have paul closing his eyes that kind of painting style i kind of in my mind my imagination is he's thinking he's thinking of john he just sang that line and he's think and john's right over his shoulder smiling i, I like that idea i hope that's true i want that image too definitely um of um Let's uh, let's just talk about. Well, actually, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about how much this song has allowed me to. It. Oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry, you froze oh, there. You want to take it from so oh, you can edit yeah, sure. it. Yeah, yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, something that I really enjoyed about the book was that it did allow me to listen to Hey Jude in a different way and re-listen to it over and over and over again, like you know, 10, 20 times in a row while I was just reading the book and writing questions and, and, and stuff. And it allowed me to break down the song into disparate parts in a way that I'd never done before. What is I'm sorry, under- you froze again. Oh my I don't gosh. want to miss your question. Sorry. Oh. Um, can you hear me now? You're having a little bit of a internet burp there. You froze on me. Okay, you're back now as well. Okay, so we're good. All right, so you want to take it from there? Take three, take three. Um, something that I really enjoyed about the book was that it allowed me to re-listen to the song over and over and over again and kind of pick it apart in a way that I'd never done before and break it down into a sort of disparate parts. 
What would you say is an underrated or undercommented element of the track or the mix that you feel deserves more credit in terms of the overall impression of the song? All of it. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's my greatest compliment to it. Because as Tom Petty said, no one cares how it was made as a sound good. And you and I care. I'm, I'm, I am, you know, infinitely interested in how things are made, uh, especially art, especially music. And that's what motivated me to write this book. And I hope it's in there. But I think the fact that you miss all the nuance, everything from the very cold opening that has no effects and what that must have sounded like on the radio. In the 60s, when it was like, bing, ding, ba, hi, it's the top of the hour. He hits the, hey, Jude. Mm. Like, there's no fanfare at all. You know, it just jumps out of your speakers. It jumps into your headphones. It jumps out of the AM radio, which it was made for. Mm-hmm. And the chordal quality of Paul's left hand, because he's a bass player. Yeah. And the bass on that record is the bass of the piano. I know George plucks on like a bass kind of uh, electric guitar, but it, the real driving bass is Paul's descending bass line. Very subtle, but the musicologists were just raving about that aspect. And then the bridge. The bridge is just untouchable. It's, it's, it's just perfect. You know, uh, when he changed, he goes up on it's just three different melodies. He's building it up. He's using these wonderful chords that, you know, uh, you'll read in the book, uh, sort of evokes an earlier song from Paul's younger days. Uh, and I don't think there's any question that the footprint of that uh, is, is there. You're meant to hear uh, that sort of echo, that tribute. And then when he just goes, does the na-na's, and he holds that note, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, in the pop song, to have this extra one, two, hey, and it's like an, it's, it's forever. I mean, I know you, if you listen to radio, there can never be what there's the dreaded dead air. But Paul builds in dead air. He builds in that, okay, we're going back to Hey Jude. And then, of course, do I need to even point out that wonderful better, better, better. And when he goes there, it's crazy. It's like I said, it's like the gospel. I had professors who would t- teach Black Pentecostal gospel music. And they say that is where he's going. And then to use the double amen, as they call it, plagal cadence for the na, 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 na. And then he's, and and then George Martin gets involved and he makes every turnaround, 19 of these things, different. There's different things happening. And then, of course, Paul's screaming and then they left a lot of stuff Paul's doing in the background in there. And, and John is doing staccato guitar, but then he gets, a, he gets Allegro. He just takes off on it. Mm-hmm. Ringo is just killing it. You could isolate what Ringo's doing, and pretty much you could isolate what Ringo's doing on any Beatles song, specifically any Beatles song after like 1965, is just crazy great. Just crazy great. And he does little things like go to the ride during the, the verses, but go to the hi-hat during the chorus. He's doing like the opposite, which is classic mm-hmm. Ringo. And it's just, I just named what, five or six things that I'm still not even scratching the sur- surface. So mm-hmm. the answer is all of it, it, yeah. all of it because it's, it, no one notices it and they shouldn't. It's just a beautiful, fun song, you know? 
period. No, um, I remember Rob Sheffield calling it uh, a drummer's song in the book, and I did, I did kind of understand what what what, what he meant by that. So much of it is uh, kind of unappreciatedly based around Ringo's drum playing. You're definitely right there. Um, you've seen Paul play this song live in '89. You've had the pleasure of that. Um, do, do you have a favourite? A recorded live version of Hey Jude from any of his performances? Oh, well, I do love the trip, the live fantastic version that I got right after the, the, the con, you know, it came out the, mm-hmm. the, the tour. Uh, I actually quoted in the book, I think that the title of the last chapter was taken directly from that concert where he sings, I can feel it. Can you feel it during the mm-hmm. Nana part? He does a couple of things in there that just gives me chills. One thing he just sings, he sings, Ah, take me back, which Mm. is what the song does. There's your emotional currency. It brings Paul back with John. It brings the audience back to the 60s if they were alive then. It brings people back to the first time they heard their first Beatles song. Uh, It brings back to a first kiss. This is what music could do for us. There's the emotional currency of music. This is why people get nuts when they use music to sell sneakers. But I know that Pete Townsend and other people have said, hey, it's my freaking song. When you write a song, you do what the hell you want with it. I don't care if this is the first song you heard when you got laid or that it helped you march against, you know, uh, against oppression. This is my song and I want to sell it to Nike or wherever. And I don't begrudge people doing that either. But this is why people get nuts because they own a song. And and I I forget, I think it was my friend Steve Hyden who, who writes for Up Rocks. He mentioned this in one of his wonderful essay books about music. He goes, I don't care if people misinterpret every breath you take because it's a horrible, horrible song about a terrible, paranoid man who is who is stalking this other woman. But people dance to it at their wedding because it meant something to them different. Once it's out in the ether, it means something else. So uh, getting back to the live thing again, I mean, just when he when he says that, oh, take me back. That's what I think of. And then I love when he says, like the two verses towards the end, he screams out, I can't stop this thing. I can't stop it. And it takes me back to a way, because Paul said, we were just having so much fun. Because I'm sure a lot of songs are played and they keep playing it 12 times. And then they say, well, we faded about a minute ago. Mm-hmm. But nobody would dare fade the Beatles when they got a groove going like that, man. Mm-hmm. And that's why George Martin felt the need to build a whole orchestra part that maintain the integrity and the primacy of something that beautiful and that cool. And I, 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 I've said it before and I'll say it again and, and please read the chapter because I go deeply in it. When they recorded this song, they did four passes of it. The very first pass is the take you hear today. So that is them continuing to play over and over and over again until they finally faded out after four and a half minutes. So that's the Beatles being the Beatles, man. The same band that jammed in the Hamburg, in Hamburg, the same one that, you know, wowed, struck down America on the Ed Sullivan show that crushed Britain uh, the year earlier. That's the Beatles right there. That to me is like the essence of the Beatles. But so I, I love that version. But there's a version of him, I think, playing at Wembley. I love the one on YouTube where he's playing at Liverpool. Mm-hmm. The one where I think he does a couple of John songs earlier in the show. He does Strawberry Fields. I think he does Imagine maybe. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, in that show, he does a wonderful version of it where he just lets everyone sing. I know he does the whole left side, right side, women, men. Let's, and yeah, yeah, let's hear the ladies sing, yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah, he still does that stuff. And that's fine. That's what people want to hear. That's that's his that's his satisfaction. That's his, you know, he's got to play that. 
I mean, and, and he's got to do that because people want to be part of it. It's it's his piano man. When I saw Billy Joel here a couple of years ago, you know, you, Billy Joel cannot not play piano man. He's got to play it. You can't take it out of the set list. I mean, I've, I've, I've spent a couple of hours this week talk, talking with people on the show about how Paul has his immovable set list and how he wants to give everyone that kind of experience when they come to his live shows. Like, what if it's someone's first time hearing me? I want to give them Hey Jude. I totally get that, but yeah, it just adds to the the the, the list of songs that he totally cannot remove from a set list. But I'd say this is definitely one of the higher order. Certainly. And it means something to him pers- personally, and it means something to the legacy of the Beatles, means something certainly to his fans, and it's a, it's a damn great song. I wouldn't have spent a year of my life on it. I know everybody's got different. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to convince people that Hey Jude is the greatest Beatles song. It's my favorite Beatles song for all the reasons I've just told you. But it's it's not any better or worse than any of them or any better or worse than Somewhere Over the Rainbow or Someone to Watch Over Me or Both Sides Now uh, or much of Randy Newman's canon because I adore Randy. Mm-hmm. You know, or I could just name billions. God, always, God Only Knows by Brian Wilson or the Beach Boys. Um you know, Marvin Gaye's wonderful work, Sam Cooke, you know, I, so I'm not saying that Hey Jude is head and shoulders above them, uh, but there's no denying it. So I can't imagine that Paul would ever, ever want to take that out of his set. Oh, and you certainly don't have to justify the existence of the book. I mean, there are many other Beale songs that you could do this kind of uh, deep dive with, but as long as you were doing that that deep dive, dude, I'd, I'd be very happy to read it. You know, whether it was Thank you. A, a Day in the Life, Blackbird, Something, Help, Get Back, Let It Be, maybe a book on the duo of Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. Um, you know, you could do it on certain solo tracks like Live and Let Die, Maybe I'm Amazed, Band on the Run. Uh, as long as it was approached in this kind of way, I'd be, I'd be more than interested to read that, certainly, dude. 100%. I think Backseat of My Car is the lineage from... Hey Jude from Ram because it's got that whole ending part you know and it's got it's got three different parts it's just like everything else on that record whether it's you know um, Uncle Albert or it's just gorgeous it's just gorgeous songwriting and it was so cool to see Paul play that in 69 at uh, Twickingham when he was goofing around that he had written that song yeah, yeah. yeah no it's definitely a progression in the sense that you know, you've got you've got the first Star Wars movie where there's one plot, the second one where there's two plots, and the third one has three. And then, yeah, Paul's definitely expanding every 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 single time. Maybe yeah, I think yes, I think I think Hey Jude is the a couple of songs where to say it's the it's the father of Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. and um, some of the things like uh, Yes did like I um, Steal All Good People that has that end part where they sing. Um, uh, Give peace a chance in the in the descant um, at the end. Um, there's so many of them, but I think it's also the the, the father of say band on the run or uh, Uncle Albert. Yeah, this the, the structures, yeah, of it. It's, and and many of the professors, especially you know Frank Samarato, Professor Frank Samarato, I mentioned earlier in his essay or his treatise that he did for for um, university, and I was I was lucky enough to read it because it wasn't published. Uh, he shared it with me talking about how there are two disparate parts, as you mentioned earlier, but they both work in tandem perfectly. So mm-hmm. you could make this same point about the three parts in Band on the Run or the several parts that are in uh, Uncle Albert, Albert Halsey or, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Paul would definitely go on to do both songs that are uh, 
sold as one song, but are actually made up of several parts or uh, double part songs like, you know, Good Time Coming and Feel the Sun or uh, After the Ball and Million Miles, Winter Rose, Love Away, that kind of thing. Then you also get things like Bang on the Run and Cage, um, uh, The Pound is Sinking with all these different parts. And the fact that Paul kind of came in first with this kind of track where it's all meant to sound like one thing because it was one thing. That's what he was aiming for after uh, from, from that point on. Like if he'd have written the Abbey Road medley first, I think he would have created a very different solo Paul than what we got. He was, you know, he was very much used to, you know, crafting something that was very intensely and put and purposefully trying to come across as one thing. And when he does that with all of his, uh, stitched together kind of songs in in his later career. You can definitely tell that that's what he's going for. Yes, that's an excellent point. And I, I I failed to mention that. I might have mentioned it in the book. I don't think you get to the medley um, without what he did with Hey Jude, uh, because in essence he's doing what they did with say you know Polythene Pam or you know uh, uh, Here Comes whatever you know as each flows into the other. You never give me your money that. It's John and Paul, but it's Paul and Paul. So it's mm-hmm. still structuring another thing to another thing, but it flows evenly. And and listen, I know Paul got a lot of guff for specifically from John for you know writing granny music or treacle or all that other silly love songs, all the crap that John was you know taking out on Paul, which was really just John taking out on himself. But and and of course the critics were merciless to Paul in the seventies. But John loved the medley, loved the idea. He just loved it. And he loved working on it. And um, you can't take that away. That's history. That's him re- re- responding to it. And it's, it's, I don't think anybody would ever call that uh, treacle or silly. I mean, it's, it's masterful. It's a wonderful, it's a band at their height, structuring songs together. And then again, which totally informed Paul's later work. Absolutely. Oh, there's so many classic tracks from Paul's back catalogue where he does that. I mean, Venus and Mars, Rock Show. Yes. All the way down to something like uh, Cufflink uh, from London Town, you know. Yeah. Uh, underrated the, record. And, London uh, Town is very underrated. Back, you know, bigger backwards traveller, the uh, the other half of that, of, of that track. Yeah. Um, now... The topic of who the song is for, we've already touched on it, but you go into great detail in chapters three and four, and it presents a bunch of arguments. You know, it's undoubtedly consciously for Julian Lennon, but then as you point out, the song turns into something much more personable and personal to Paul himself. Then you've got Lennon thinking that the song might be for him. Then you've got the Linda element. Then you've got the, the idea that, that this song is for both Beatle fans and then for everyone with all these culprits, these potential suspects, have you settled on an idea who it is for definitively? Are you undecided or is it a bit more complicated than just one of them? Uh, I, I feel like I'm copping out it again by saying all of them. Like mm-hmm. I said, none no, before. Don't worry, don't worry. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's all in the book, so you can make your decision. I, and I, and I, do, I did want to get this quote in. It's from... Uh, it, it, I think it was uh, William Boone, Dr. William Boone, also from NC State University, told me he quoted uh, something from the African-American uh, studies scholar, Ashlyn, Ashton Crawley, who was a black Pentecostal uh, teacher. And he wrote uh, an essay called The Aesthetics of Possibility. And in it, he talks about, we turn to art. This is a direct quote. We turn to art because it enacts the world we want to live in. 
So in a very real way, I think Hey Jude does that. Now, does other songs do that? Sure, absolutely. Do other, you know, paintings do it? Yes. Poems? True. Films? Without a doubt. But this song really does underline that theory. And so for that, it, it, it's an all-encompassing. Paul came up with the melody, driving out to uh, Weymouth to visit uh, Cynthia and Julian. John has just fallen head over heels for Yoko and moved out. He's done. As John can be, he's mercurial and cold, and he's also dominant. John is the unquestioned leader of the Beatles, always. Even when Paul was kind of more in charge, when John was kind of out of it and doing a lot of drugs to his own admission and kind of just not embracing the day-to-day Mm-hmm. Death of Brian Epstein hit him harder than I think than any other Beatle. And but John was the unquestioned leader. If you watch Jeff Get Back, you could see Paul trying to engage John always. As long as John's engaged, we can get this band off its off its feet. So th- there's that. And but Paul is still going out to visit the ex-wife, soon-to-be ex-wife of, of his buddy, his teenage buddy, a woman, by the way, that Paul had known within weeks after meeting John. Mm-hmm. John started dating her at 17 years old and I think Paul was 15 or 16. And so there isn't a really a time that Paul knows John that Cynthia's not in there. And she's been through all the ups and ups and downs as him. The two people that were closest to John during this period were Paul McCartney and Cynthia Lennon. And he goes out to comfort them and comfort Julian, who he was like a surrogate father for. Julian says, and I quote in my book, I have tons of pictures of me and Paul playing, none of me and dad playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul loved Heather, Linda's uh, daughter, loved his father's uh, stepdaughter. After he remarried years later after Mary's death, he loved kids. One of the reasons why he and Jane Asher's relationship didn't work, because she, she was a working woman. She, was, she wanted out a career, and he wanted a family. And so, yes, he drives out there, and he sings this melody, Hey Jules. And, of course, he says it's a sad song. You're going to have, he says it in his quote. I, I use the quote from his uh, many years from now. Uh, the Miles book, which is Barry Miles book, which is fantastic. And he says, I, I just wanted to make them feel better. That's all I wanted to do. And um, so that's your first part. But when you say you have found her, now go and get her. Now, Julian is, what, six, seven years old. Who is he getting exactly? Uh, you could substitute her for dad, but dad's not coming back. He's just fallen in love with Linda. Yoko's just, John's just fallen in love with Yoko. In fact, to the point where John hears this song for the very first time. And before Paul's even done playing it for him, he says, oh my God, this song's about me. Mm-hmm. And Paul's like, well, and he's like, well, we're going through the same thing then. Cause this is, you have found her now go and get her, let her under your skin, let her into your heart. I mean, John had found it very, very hard to love. Even Cynthia says it. I mean, he married Cynthia cause he got her pregnant when they were teenagers. Mm-hmm. He lost his mother to an off-duty cop who was drunk, who hit her when she was, you know, a young woman that he just was starting to get to know. Paul loses his mom at 14, and they connect in this way. So in a way, Paul is saying, we, can, we found this woman that we've been looking for since our moms died. Because it's all very, very edible, not in the sense where they were in love with their mother in that, that way. But they were, they, the mother figures to them were so stark. Mm-hmm. They, they, they missed that, the tenderness, the emotion that you could only get from a woman, that you could only get from a mother. And, you know, John called Yoko mother till the day he died. Yes. He writes a song and titles it Julia within weeks before, John, before Paul plays, uh, writes Hey Jude. 
and he sings Ocean Child, which is Yoko Ono is in Japanese is translated in English as Ocean Child. So there's all these parallels and connections. So it's a song about them finding love, but it's also a song about vulnerability. You're vulnerable when you're a young boy and you lose your, your dad who just went off with a strange woman. You, you're vulnerable when you lose your mother to breast cancer. You're vulnerable when you lose your mother to a terrible car accident. And, and you're vulnerable when you write songs like I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You and Tomorrow Never Knows, not Tomorrow Never Knows, but uh, uh, Here, There, and Everywhere. Mm-hmm. Although Tomorrow Never Knows could be a very vulnerable song. But, but, but you, you hear the Beatles, John and Paul, trying to fix it. And in essence, what Paul is saying to John, he's saying it to, and he's saying it to his, to his generation that's breaking apart around him in 1968. You could do this. Could be, you could do this. You'll do. Hey, Jude, you'll do. You know, the movement you need is on your shoulder. What movement? Is it a underground movement? Is it a youth movement? Is it a race movement? Is it a women's movement? And is it your own personal movement to get out of your own way, mm-hmm. get back on your feet? I hope I didn't give this answer too long, but it's all in there, bro. And I just, I, it hit me so hard when I was researching the book. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. This song has got so many levels, so many levels. Yeah, I love the interpretation that it's an ode to like surrogate fathers. And, you know, the, the song means something else to like lonely or abandoned children. I really love that. And finding out that like an early draft of the original line was like, she has found you, found you. instead of now go and get her. That's like a, a, a subtle but crucial difference between the you know, crucial and yes, like, you know, a, a boy yeah. dealing with a broken family. It might be about its own composer, his song about partner them, their own mothers, the new women in their lives. Like it, it opens up so much. And like I think you know one of the the greatest things both uh, that works for the song itself, but also for you as an author writing a book about it. One of the the greatest uh, facets of the song is it's overall vagueness you know the fact that nothing is addressed too directly means that there is a rorschach test for all of us where we can basically make it about whatever we need it to be about to give us that emotional resonance um yeah well said yeah yeah that's what i was trying to get at you know it means nothing and everything and uh, just like movement you need is on your shoulder. And it's one of the reasons why John kept pointing to Hey Jude as, as Paul's great triumph uh, lyrically, because where when you have take Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, the A-B side, the double A side, that is the precursor to the magnificent Sgt. Peppers. Two, two childhood friends decide to write about their childhood in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. One guy writes basically a geographical snapshot. That could be a painting. It could be like a, you know, a Magritte painting or, you know, it, should, it could be like downtown Paris, right? It could be any of those things. It's, it's almost like a journalist working. You know, he talks about the firemen and the, 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 the nurse. Once again, the nurse again, his mom, you know, giving away flowers and the guy running out of the rain and everything. And John's writing this ethereal inter-commentary about is nothing is real and I don't have I, they're both writing about the same thing, their childhood memories, but John's going for the you know the the, the avant-garde and Paul was seeped in avant-garde too, but not in his writing. He was much more direct. So there are points, I forget who says it in my book, but somebody does, and I think it might have been Howard Sons, one of his um maybe Peter Peter Ames Carlin, who who wrote an, a, a great book, Paul McCartney A Life, that I read. Um and he told me, I think it was uh, it was Peter. He said, "Paul's always at his best when he works with his subconscious." Mm-hmm. 
you know, I think he's doing that here. Uh, and I think he did it to a greater extent in his solo career. Um, he was much more playful because I think John sometimes pulled him back or maybe George Martin did, or maybe Ringo did. I mean, somebody kept the thing that made the Beatles great or made John and Paul great when they had each other. And they got a lot of shit for not having John being too stern and your face with his songs and Paul being too flowery with some of his songs was also the thing that, that wasn't as much fun because they were free of each other's push and pull. And I think there's something artistically uh, admirable about that, about how they embrace the freedom from each other then, you know? In chapter 10, how the song works, you talk about the psychological predictions and how we can consciously or subconsciously know where a song is or isn't going to go and maybe not even care because that's where we want it to go into the first place. Um, I guess, you know, in, say, uh, referring back to your Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields uh, comparison, you know, Lennon seems to very much write for himself, Paul seems to write for the, everyone else. Um, is it one of his greatest strengths that he just does write songs for the audience and giving them what they want rather than maybe what he thinks they they should want is you know would would that be one of the, i mean the greatest strength of hey jude at least that paul just gives you what you want yeah because he's a pro and mm. it, it, nobody i think i point out at some point you could look up the numbers they're staggering uh he's you know by far the most popular uh and it's important because he's writing pop music. People say, well, popularity doesn't make any difference. You know, like, uh, it, it kind of does. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's had more number one songs with the Beatles, without the Beatles combined with other people like Michael Jackson or whoever else he's written songs with. And then, or Stevie Wonder. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, with Wings and then all the other things that he's done that he's clearly has his finger on the pulse of what, but it comes down to really he just writes beautiful melodies He's just really good at knowing what we love to hear. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're referring to is, um, and I want to get her name right here. I always forget these names, so many in, in, my, uh, in my book. Andrea Halpern is a professor of psychology at Bucknell University who did tell me about how songs are absorbed by the human mind and, mm -hmm. and how, we, how Paul taps into that. He knows it. He's, he knows it instinctually. That's what it is. He has an instinct for what we will find palatable. And not in the sense of the silly love songs idea, but the sense of how can I have an emotional currency from when I sit down at my piano in my Cavendish apartment and put this song together? Can I make it a, a universal elixir for my generation? Can I make it a connecting song for my pal John? Can I make Julian feel better? Can I make a song that everyone can sing? that we can make a good band song out of, that will sound good on the record because there is a distinction between a good song and a good record. We know for many, you know, this is a great song. It's just, there's too much this, there's too much that in it, it's not enough this. I mean, then Beatles knew how to make records and Paul knew how to make songs that would be records. So it's all in there. Once again, it's a soup, it's a stew. I, I forget who said it, but again, I'm looking at my list of all the, the contributors. It's, it's vast. But, you know, there was a lot of talk about how Paul could make you, I remember somebody said this to me about in a, in a previous book that I wrote, that Barry Manilow can make a song smirk. He can make you, he can make us, he can make a song wink, whatever the hell that is, mm -hmm. you know, and um, even George Morton said there's a lot of math in that and there's a lot of structure, but 
there's something inexplicable. It gets back to that magic thing. So yeah, I think Paul is a pro. He does. He knows how to make music that that's popular that we dig. But I think he's very underrated in getting down to the emotional, real um, bedrock of why human beings tick. And I, I guess some of the success of the song wrote a massive part of it, especially the second half, worldwide particularly, is that it is a lingual as well. It it it, it requires no un- understanding at all. Right. Um, it is a, a a totally almost guttural caveman language. You know, it's totally instinctive. Uh, there's there's no one who doesn't get the pleasure of this song. Um, could you imagine a world where John did the lead vocal for this? Could you imagine uh, <laughs> a universe where John went, "No, no, Paula, I think I should do that one." Uh, you know. <laughs> no, it's pure Paul. You're right. And, you know, no, I did invoke it. You know, I I went back at the beginning in the introduction and talked about how Paul played this at the Kremlin. And you could see people just exploding there because, you know, that it's this is after the wall went down, blah, blah, blah. And you just it's just there's something about it. They could all sing it, you know, that nobody speaks English there. They're all singing it and they're they're feeling it. Um, And it is universal in that sense. And again, and I think I picked out, I didn't put it in the book, but I have a Facebook page for it, the Hey Jude book Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And I finally had a place to put it because I didn't want to take up word space with this. But I think there's 109 songs with the na-na's in it, with na-na's in it. I think three of them predate um, Hey Jude and the rest of them are all, you know, and um, they all do owe a debt to to Hey Jude. But there's, I mean, there's na-na's, like I said, going way back you know, hundreds of years in songs and how, and even Professor Halpern says, we, we, we goes back to Neanderthal times. It goes back really to the womb. If you want to get into the, uh, the heartbeat, the, the mother's heartbeat. So it's all there. Uh, and Paul taps into it. Like I said, better than most. In chapter seven, you bring up the classic story of George wanting to add those little electric guitar fills to the main mm-hmm. melody. Um, is Paul's decision to not do so possibly the most vindicated fully realized everyone agrees that Paul was in the right story in the Beatles catalog. You know, it's a, uh, no one wants that surely. I, I can't think of a single person who thinks, yeah, it would have been better if George had just kind of written all over it. It's, it's easy to say because we all adore the song and, and many songwriters said, I can't imagine a world without it. We already know it. It's like imprinted in our brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam George, my friend said, you know, it's like a Beatles songs are like scars, uh, so it's hard to imagine it in another way, but you know, Paul gives uh, uh, George all the credit for you know, bo do do do, and I love her. I mean, that makes the song bo do do do. It's like that great guitar riff that uh, that Michael Campbell s- plays at the beginning of uh, Breakdown. You can't imagine that song without it, but. Um, yeah, it would, it, 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 that's good. I'm not qualified to make that statement, but it's a bold statement that I'm going to go, I'm going to bow to you, Sam, and say, yes, it was a fine decision to not have George play all, you know, what's funny about that. George sends him up and isn't it a pity on, uh, on, uh, on his first solo album, <laughs> all things must pass. Cause he does the na-na part at the end. Another na-na, yeah. And he plays, and he does, it does the full, it's, it's basically the end of Hey Jude. That's what it is. I mean, he's just sending him up and and also, uh, according to one, I forget who said it, but it, somebody had brought it up in my book that when they did Free as a Bird uh, or Real Love, one of those two songs, George is answering every line with the guitar part. Yeah, Real Love. Yeah. 
So he got the he got the last laugh on that. <laughs> I think. Look, whatever you want it is me to play, I'll play it all right. Well, I yeah. won't do anything. Very good. Nice job. The classic. Um, you know what? Let's let's start closing out now. And I'm gonna close out with one of my favorite quotes from the book because it it, it 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 just summed up the whole the, the whole thing for me. Uh, it reads Hey Jude becomes the sonic equivalent of the evolution of the 1960s. It's burgeoning youth movement, new social freedoms, and expanding imagination. The Beatles turning life events into song. Yet, as the youth culture coalesced, much like the song's layering, it's eventually fractured in the year it was composed, released, and recorded. And so Hey Jude, in turn, reflects the sudden schism as the song splits up into two disparate parts. It also illustrates how those parts can work in tandem, both musically and socially, simultaneously connoting a celebration of individuality and solidarity. God damn, that's good. I really, <laughs> I really, thanks, man. No, dude, seriously, I really enjoyed this book. It was a real fun read for me. It was great to have to have an excuse to dive into it as deeply as I did. I give it my full recommendation, my full stamp of approval. Though the fact that you get an episode is already and a, a, a testament to that anyway uh, i don't think i'd ever have someone on the show and then at the very end go yeah i didn't like it actually uh <laughs> after those now. two hours uh, yeah didn't like it uh, yeah, i faked the smile the entire time yeah. uh thank you i i that was so beautifully read i i feel like you should do the uh the audiobook it would i think it's I think it absolutely should have an English accent. Oh, oh yeah. I will take the paycheck. I'll take uh, the paycheck yeah. on that. Don't I will you? put your name in there. <laughs> you know, someone said to me though that they 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 in order to prepare for one of the interviews, they had to listen to it on uh you could you could there's an app that will read the book to you, but it's like a very robotic and because I use na 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 a lot in the intro is like na 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 they finally had to give up. <laughs> It was a little bit too much of a creative device, but thank you, very Sam. I'm very moved. I, I think that is a, a, a fine passage, if I may say. And and I have to do a book reading tomorrow night, and now I have something to read because I hate reading my stuff. But I think that does encapsulate you. You you did it. Uh, your your lit major is coming out. You 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 nailed, you know, a, a 269 page, 80 thousand word book in in a paragraph because. Uh, I think it. I think it has all those things in it, and we didn't even touch upon again the generation in 1968, the strife that the world was going through. But again, read the book. Uh, uh, you know, it's all in there, and it's all part of what Hey Jude is. And and I think I hope that when people get to the end of it, they won't think I'm completely nuts and sort of agree with some of it. And it seems like you did. So that's that's a big boon uh, to it. You know, because you're a true, clearly <laughs> a true Paul McCartney fan and Beatle fan. So thank you. Sir. Uh, it's it's a fun gamble to uh, give the audience. You're basically over an entire book going, no, no, trust, tr trust me. I haven't completely lost it. There's definitely stuff, <laughs> stuff worth talking about here. And you definitely do that. Um, where, where, where can, I mean, it has it been released by now? Or is it about to be released? Where can people get it? What's going on? What's going on? Yes. Well, well, the time we're taping this, no, but it will be out on June 1. So whenever this does air, uh, it will be everywhere, everywhere you buy books. Again, if you happen to be in the contiguous United States and you want a, a copy sent to you with free shipping, I will sign it. Um, and otherwise, I'm sure you can get it in your local bookstore wherever you're hearing this. And uh, certainly all the different Amazons, like I said, UK and everything will, will have it. I'm very excited for finally to be out and for people like yourself to read it. It, was a, it truly was a labor of love. When I was working on my last book about Warren Zevon, people kept asking me, why Warren Zevon? 
and I kept telling them. You won Zevon book. Oh my god, that's that's, that's awesome. Are you a fan? Uh, I I love Werewolves of London. I know it's his big commercial hit, but I love yeah. that song, and I'm I'm glad to hear that he has uh, in, in, in enough content to fill a book. That's all. Yes, cool. please check it out. I want to make a new fan. Uh, but yeah, everybody kept asking me why Warren Zevon for the very point you make, and uh, I said because there's too many damn Beatle books. And what did I do? I went out and wrote another Beatle book. <laughs> I was a hypocrite, but I I, I the, the book. Like I said, the song kept talking to me. Weird things were happening. My father got sick and passed in late 2019 after I'd already pitched the book. I wasn't going to do it. And then the very last song I heard before he died was Hey Jude. It just happened. Isn't that weird? No, uh, that's the same year. My, my, my father passed, passed away as well. There's a bit, bit of a quinky link there. Uh, that's definitely a song that uh, links me back to old daddy kins, especially talking about the kind of uh, abandoned child, lonely child aspect of the song as well. You know, adoptive new uh, people in, in your life and stuff. Very, very poignant there. It um, is. I'm sorry for your loss. No, 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 don't worry, bro. It's not like I talk about it on the show. Uh, every available opportunity to solicit sympathy <laughs> from my audience or anything like that. <laughs> uh, you know, so, oh, so sorry, folks. Last week's episode was poorly edited and uh, late, but you know, I'm sad. You know, yeah, definitely. Oh, uh, can I ask you something before we break? Are you, are you, are you, are you rapping now? Are we rapping? As they uh, say in the in the parliament. Yes, I am bringing this thing to a close. Okay, so I have a question for you. I can't let you go without asking you on okay. the record. <laughs> I'm sure you've talked about it, but do you have a favorite Paul McCartney album? Oh, it's probably Ram. But you know, what about favorite song? I mean, it's not just Ram. I mean, I'm a huge Venus and Mars fan as well. Uh, okay. I think Off the Ground and uh, Parts of Peace are horrendously underrated as well. Uh, I can certainly put on press to play and listen to it the whole way through and enjoy it as well. Um, a solo McCartney song, it's probably the Daytime, Nighttime Suffering, Good Night Tonight, Monkberry Moon Delight, uh, I'll Love Me Some UASLA, Check My Machine. Uh, the theme song for the show is uh, Temporary sec- sec- Secretary and the close for the show is No Words. Those are incredible tunes as well. Uh, half Den Lane as well, of course, but too many to choose from absolutely too many to choose from uh, all right well thank you for indulging me i no, had to ask yeah. no uh country dreamer i lie around single pigeon now i've got them started i am your singer yeah <laughs> uh, um 1985 bluebird wow. oh oh the list goes on and on and on, and on. Oh, yeah. i mean they're all beautiful they're all good songs unironically i like come on to me and fur you uh, recently been going through Egypt Station again. Definitely worth checking out, folks. Giving it another re-listen. But yeah, before I end up just listing, you know, about 500 songs <laughs> in non-sequential order, I'm going to bring this to a close. This has been another episode of Paul or Nothing. I have been here today, today here with James Campion, the author of Take a Sad Song, a book all about Hey Jude. Yes, folks, this has opened up a window for me to totally steal uh, uh, a way to write a book here and the copy and the way it's structured. Definitely going to do that. But just write it about Maybe I'm Amazed instead and just, you know, swap out a few words here and there. Thank you so much for uh, inspiring such a a stolen work there, dude. It's been really fun talking to you. It's been even more fun reading your book. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been great. Thank you, Sam. I really appreciate it. And uh, happy birthday, Paul. Right around his time. Going to be 80. As well. Yes. No, uh, I will be down in London 
for the uh, 80th birthday celebrations with the um, A Word in Your Ear podcast, the biggest music podcast here in the UK. That's going to be down in London at uh, the park next to Hyde Park, I believe. I am, I am going to be rather shamelessly dropping them an email, being like, hey, I'm with the UK's biggest podcast. Could I, like, you know, come on stage? Uh, you know, I'm not, oh. not, 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 not too brash. But come on. Yeah, it, I'm not... So, you know, I'm not doing that for like the re-release of Let It Be, a Beatles thing. This is a poor thing. I'm definitely going to put my name forward. You know, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you should. I, I wish you the best of luck and a happy birthday to Paul. Do and you I really not appreciate- know who I am? I, I, <laughs> do you? Exactly. Don't you know who I am? That Start with that. That always works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, the right. one, I'm the one who makes dick jokes about Metro Speedway. Don't you know me? My gosh. <laughs> Dude, this has been awesome. Let's catch up soon. Uh, we'll definitely it. have another chat at some point. I know. Folks, this has been an echo of the port or nothing. Thank you very much for listening. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry, Krishna. No more autographs. Play us out, Denny. <laughs> <laughs>